An author that goes by the pen name, I love this name. She goes by the pen name C. Joybell C. That's quite a name, isn't it? She once wrote this. She said, they say a good love is one that sifts you down, gives you a drink of water, and pats you on top of the head. But I say a good love is one that casts you into the wind, sets you ablaze, makes you burn through the skies, and ignite the night like a phoenix, the kind that cuts you loose like a wildfire. And you can't stop running simply because you keep on burning everything that you touch. I say that's a good love, one that burns and flies, and then you run with it. We're in a series that we began just last week at City Church. You've heard uh, Nathaniel uh, and Sean talking about it. It's a series that's called Catching Fire. And the idea behind this series is that the city of Evansville needs a spiritual awakening. But before that can happen, many of us, the people who make up the church in Evansville, are in need of a spiritual revival to renew the fire that once burned hot in our hearts for Christ, but now only flickers. The Holocaust and uh, Nobel, the Holocaust survivor and Nobel laureate uh, Elie Wiesel once wrote this. He said, "The opposite of love is not hate; it's indifference." He said, "The opposite of art is not ugliness; it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy; it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death; it's indifference." And you see, it's that indifference that we need rescued from. As people, as a church, we need to catch fire. Last week, I tried to whet your appetite uh, for revival. And to that end, I talked about a few of the great revivals that have happened in America and the lasting effects that have come from them. Today, what I want to do is I want to take a close look at what causes this spiritual indifference to set in over the years in the lives of Christ followers. Why aren't we people who... As C. Joybell C. says, have been set ablaze, burning through the skies and igniting the night like a phoenix from the profound love of Jesus Christ, the best love ever. Why aren't we those kinds of people? To answer that question, I want to take you to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. It's the last book of the Bible. Uh, Just a few words of context here. The book of Revelation was written to Christians who were about to face a terrible persecution. And they needed something that would help them endure that persecution and rise to the occasion. And so God gives to John a revelation. He reveals the great and glorious Jesus Christ who will reign over the entire earth. A Jesus Christ who cannot be tamed or trivialized. A Jesus Christ who cannot be marginalized, compromised, institutionalized, or customized into whoever and whatever you want him to be. He is who he is, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And so God reveals him to John. And in chapter 1, his hair, Jesus' hair is white. His eyes are on fire. His face is shining like the sun. And out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword to show that his words penetrate and nothing can stop them. He is the king of the world. And everyone and everything, seen and unseen in the universe, is under his authority and bows to his name. That's chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus addresses 
seven churches in Asia Minor that existed at that time. And what he's doing is he's trying, he, and he's just addressing seven. There are more churches than seven, but he's addressing those seven because he wants to strengthen the church as a whole for this persecution that they're going to go through, okay? Probably the reason he only chooses seven churches is because the issues that those churches were dealing with are representative, uh, representative of the issues that every church in human history has dealt with, okay? At some point in time. Now, we're just going to focus on one of those churches. We're going to just focus on his comments to the church at Ephesus, which is a city, by the way, that is also in dire need of a spiritual awakening and a church that's also in need of revival. So let's start reading in chapter 1, excuse me, in verse 1 of chapter 2. Sorry about that. Verse 1 of chapter 2. John writes, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him, that's Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. He says, you've persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Yet, he says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, uh, before I get into the meat of what this passage has to speak to us about today as it relates to revival, I just want to make a few quick observations. One of the things that makes the book of Revelation so difficult, if you've ever tried to read it, is that there's a great deal of symbolism in it. So, for instance, here you have seven stars and seven lampstands. Well, the seven stars represent the teachers, the leaders of these seven churches that Jesus is addressing. And the seven lampstands represent the seven churches themselves. Now, what I want you to notice is that verse 1 says that Jesus walks among the seven lampstands or the seven churches. In other words, he is deeply involved with and concerned about his church. Those of you who treat the church cavalierly, who trivialize the importance of the local church in your life or in human history, who wonder why is it even necessary to participate in a church to be a follower of Christ? Do you understand that Jesus is deeply involved with city church? Do you understand that he is personally invested in us? That this church matters to him and that your participation in this church matters to him. Hey, notice, Jesus isn't walking among seven tech companies in Simi Valley. He doesn't walk among seven governmental agencies in Washington, D.C., or seven companies in the city of Evansville. 
Nor does he walk among seven individual Christ followers in this city. He walks among the churches. Jesus is intimately involved with the local church because it is of primary importance to his movement throughout human history. So stop trivializing its role in your life and in your family's life. The hope for your family is in the local church. Stop treating it cavalierly like, oh, well, you know, if we have time and if we're in town, uh, we'll go to church. No way. That's not the way you treat his church. He's the founder. He's the namesake. He's the head of the church. He's the protector of the church. And you may have noticed in verse five that he's the authority over the church who can also remove our lampstand as a church anytime he chooses to do it. And you know what that means when he removes our lampstand? It means that there may be people coming to the church. There might be a lot of people coming to the church, but nothing supernatural is happening because the Spirit of God isn't here. That's what it means. And I would suggest to you that there are many churches in the city of Evansville and in America that are just like that. Now, as it pertains to the issue of revival, I believe this passage speaks to us about the cause of spiritual indifference. In other words, why you get to this place that you're indifferent, that you don't care anymore, that it's just not, just doesn't do anything for you anymore. So the cause of spiritual indifference. And then I think it speaks to the cure for spiritual indifference. The cause of and the cure for spiritual indifference. And I want to start with the cause of spiritual indifference. I want you to look at what Jesus says about this church. He has so many good things to say about them. Verse two, they do good deeds. They work hard. They persevere in those good deeds. I'll bet they're very involved in the community. They're doctrinally sound. They don't tolerate wicked people. Probably what's in view when he says that they don't tolerate uh, wicked people are the false apostles and their false teachings that he speaks about in the rest of verse 2. In verse 3, he says, they've persevered in hardships for Jesus' name, perhaps, uh, perhaps as a result of persecution. In verse 6, they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which all we really know about them is that they were false teachers who taught and practiced heresy, probably a form of heresy that, uh, that believed that sensuality and sexuality were very consistent with Christianity, and so they practiced that. That would have been very consistent with the city of Ephesus, okay? It's probably what they taught. Bottom line, this church stands for and believes and practices all good things. You won't find a more orthodox church. But I'd like to suggest to you that if you were to walk into this church some Sunday morning, and I've walked into a lot of these, you just sense that something, something there in that church is missing. Maybe you'd sense a lack of joy. Maybe it'd be like an episode of The Walking Dead when you walk in. It just, you know, it just feels dead. Maybe in their worship service, they would, maybe they'd have great music. Maybe they have a great band. There's no one in there, and they're like singing. They're just, they're just barely moving their lips. It's not the band. It's not the songs. I mean, all the right words. They, they would sing good theologically accurate songs. They're not going to sing bad theology. They're not going to sing 
Like what I call Jesus is my boyfriend songs. You know what I'm talking about with those kind of praise songs, Jesus is my boyfriend? Like, let me, let me read this to you. This, these are the lyrics from one popular Christian praise song. It goes like this. You are my, I'm not gonna sing it. I'm gonna read it to you. You are my desire, no one else will do because nothing else could take your place to feel the warmth of your embrace. And that feels like something Selena Gomez might sing to Justin Bieber. It doesn't sound like something we should be singing to Jesus. I feel like if I sing those words, my man card should be permanently removed. I mean, like I know what they're trying to get across, but I'm not singing that. I'm sorry. So they've got, you know, they probably have great music. They've got songs that are full of good theology that are masculine enough for men to sing. The pastor's sermon is theologically sound. It's all good. It's all true. But oh my word, is it dry. Like you feel like you're slogging through a desert parched for thirst. You've never experienced that here. But some people in other churches experience that. And when you get back in your car after the service, like you're just not sure that you, that you want to return. Because it just feels like even though everything they did and said was right, it just feels like something is missing. And what is it? What is it that's missing from that church? Jesus says it very clearly in verse 4. He says, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. In other words, what he's saying is, this church is characterized by a loveless, dead orthodoxy. Because once they were ablaze with love for Christ, They've become indifferent about it all. See, he's talking about their love for Christ. It's a church that, it's just, it's just going through the motion. They do all the right things, but they're doing all of those things out of duty and obligation. And I, wanna, I want you to see something here that I think is very important. This spiritual indifference didn't just happen to them. Jesus says that they have, the word he uses is forsaken their first love. They didn't lose it. Like it didn't just happen to them. Jesus didn't abandon them. They abandoned Jesus. And here's what that means. When they first heard the gospel, This church was so moved by Christ's love for them that Christ would love sinners like them. They were so moved by his love that everything they did was in response to that. You see, that's what fuels a church. Christ's love for you is what fuels your love for Christ. But I think what you see in this passage is what happens to so many followers of Christ. They're doing all of the right things and believing all the right things. But while they were saved by grace at one point in the past, they're now trying to be perfected in their own strength. In other words, their lives have now become a performance to earn God's love. They've forgotten that God's acceptance is, was, and will always be based upon Christ's performance, Christ's moral excellence, Christ's purity, Christ's life, Christ's sacrifice, not theirs, not yours, not mine. And once that happens, once you forget that, everything becomes about duty and obligation. And duty and obligation are no substitute 
for love. Let me ask you this, or let me, let me, let me suggest this. Just imagine that you ask your spouse, do you love me? Like, do you love me? And just imagine that your spouse says, I don't love you, but what difference does that make? I do everything you ask me to do. I get you a present on your birthday. I do all my chores. Love, not so much, but I'm very dutiful. Would you accept that? Of course you would. Because duty and obligation are no substitute for love. You see, here's the deal. If you find yourself this morning in need of revival, if Christianity has become about duty and obligation to you, if you've become indifferent and the love of Christ no longer seems to move the needle of your heart, you need look no further than this passage to understand why. Somewhere along the line, you have left your love for Christ. Christ didn't leave you. You have left your love for Christ. Now understand, I'm not saying, this, this isn't saying that you're no longer saved. That's not, that's not what it's saying. It's just saying that somewhere along the line, you began to believe that the good news of Christ's death on the cross is only for the unsaved. It's not for you anymore because you're saved. You believed it for your salvation, but you're not believing in it anymore for your ongoing relationship with God. You've lost sight of the gospel. And when you lose sight of the gospel, the love of Christ no longer amazes you. It no longer stirs you. It no longer fuels your love for him. The apostle Paul, uh, he said this in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, the gospel, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is what rescues us from lives of futility and meaninglessness on this earth. And the gospel is what rescues us from an eternity of pain and futility and meaninglessness. You see, the gospel, it's it's about Christ. It's never you. You you don't have power. You are powerless. If you're looking to come to City Church so that I will tell you that you have a lot of power and all that, wrong church. There's probably another church you could go to that would do that. I'm telling you, you have no power because you are a sinner. So am I. We are all sinners. The reason that many of us are feeling this need for revival is because we've left our first love. While we were saved by the gospel, what's happened? Let me put it this way. What's happened is that over the years, after you believed in Christ, you became religious. That's what religion is all about. Religion is all about you perform for God. But Christianity is about Christ's performance. He did all that had to be done on your behalf when he died on a Roman cross. And when he breathed his last breath there on that cross, he said, look it up, look it up in the gospels. He said this word, tetelestai, which means it's finished. It's done. All the work that needs to be done is done. And so the cause of spiritual indifference is that you've forsaken your love for Christ and you've turned all of your focus and your attention on yourself and your performance and your duties and your obligations and how good you have to be. There's nothing that will put out a flame for Christ 
more than turning your, taking your eyes off of Christ and turning them onto yourself. Nothing. The cause of spiritual indifference is that you've forsaken your love for Christ. Now, here's the question I hope that you're asking to yourself. If you're one of the people that feels like you need revival, and I think we all do, the question that you should be asking is, can I get it back? Can that flame be reignited? Now, okay, don't misunderstand. Let's make sure you understand. I am not saying, can I get saved again? This is not about that. Not saying that it... Not saying that if you need revival, that you need saved again. That's not the point. The point is, can I reignite the flame? It's like in a marriage, you know, in a marriage. I mean, you you go on for years, and all of a sudden, you wake up one day, and you realize we're a roommate. Can we get the flame back? Yes, of course you can. Do you have to get married again? No, you're already married. Can you get the flame back? Yeah. Can you get the flame back in your relationship with Christ? Yes, you can. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the cure for spiritual indifference. I want you to notice that in verse 5, Jesus tells these, church, uh, this, these people in this church, he says, he says three things that they need to do to get their love back. And, and I just I want to point out that you're not suddenly going to just have, like, you know, be sitting around and say, boy, you know, I wish I had that passion again, and a bolt of lightning hits you, and then all of a sudden it revives you. That's not going to happen. You're going to have to be intentional if you want to recapture your love for Christ. And so he says, he says the first thing that you need to do is to consider. Verse 5, he says, first thing you need to do is consider. Now, what, what he's saying is, you need to sit down and reflect. Like, put aside, okay, so put aside uh, the phone. Turn off the computer. Take out your earbuds. Turn off the TV. Like, make some time to just sit down and reflect. I'm just, by the way, this is, this is a freebie, okay? This is free. I saw the other day, I was reading an article, uh, I think it was on CNN's website, and there is a new phone out that is called the Light Phone. And you know, here's the deal with the Light Phone. And they're taking orders now. I get no commission for this. I'm just telling you. Here's the deal for the, with the light phone. It's supposed to be like a second phone. So like you take, your, you take your regular smartphone and you forward calls to this phone. It's got the same phone number, okay? But all that this phone does is this. Get this. All it does is take calls and make calls. You, you can't text. You can't check your email. There's no apps on it. It's just a phone, and the idea is, if you go on their website, it's just so cool. I wish I had the time to read to you what they say on their website. But what they say on their website is that, is that like, is like, you know, all of this stuff that we've got that keeps us busy, it's running us. But we're not running it, it running those things. It's keeping us from solitude. It's keeping us from appreciating things because we always have got to keep having the next thing. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm preaching about all that. But let me, let me just say, okay, stop. You can go check it out. The light phone, okay? Check out the light phone. You've got to make some time to just sit down and reflect. What was it like when you first learned of the love for Christ, of Christ's love for you? What did you feel? And then consider how far you've fallen. What's the difference? How is it different now? What does it feel like now? When did it begin to change? In other words, when did you, when did you turn religious? 
instead of believing the gospel. Consider, that's number one. The second he says is to repent. You didn't accidentally lose your love for Christ. Like it didn't just happen to you. You left it when you started believing in yourself. And Jesus says, repent of trusting in yourself. And then finally, Jesus says, do the things you did at first. I think a better translation, I think that's a confusing translation, a better translation is this, get back to first things. Get back to first things. What does that mean? It means go back to the basics. Go back to the gospel. Remind yourself of what Christ did for you on the cross. Remind yourself of the beauty of his love for you. Remind yourself of who he is and how amazing it is that a king would die for you. This is what I mean when I say remind yourself of this. When I, this is what I mean when I say almost every Sunday, I say you have to preach the gospel to yourself all through your Christian experience. Like when you succeed at something, like when you really do something that you feel like, oh man, God really must love that I did this. That you remind yourself that what you just did is not the basis of God's love for you. His love didn't go up because you did that. It's, it's Christ's life and death, not yours. And then when you fail miserably, like you, you, know, you, you do the same thing you've done so many times and you're just so embarrassed and ashamed about it, you remind yourself, you preach the gospel to yourself in that moment, you remind yourself that nothing has changed in this moment about God's love for you because it was never about your moral excellence. It's always been about Christ's. That's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. You have to do that. Not because you can lose your salvation. That's not what I mean. You're preaching the gospel to yourself to stir your heart for Christ anew. Because it's so easy to lose sight of the gospel and turn Christianity into just another lifeless religion. And when I say that you have to preach the gospel to yourself, let's make sure that we understand what the gospel is. The gospel is that you, because you're a sinner could not ever qualify for a relationship with God. But God, in his great love for you, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to do what you could never do. He lived the life that you should have lived, and he died the death that you should have died. That's the gospel. Here's another way to say it. You're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. Now, just let that sink in for a minute. You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. But at the same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus than you ever dared imagine. That's the gospel. Get back to first things. Preach the gospel to yourself if you want to catch fire again. Okay. But listen, we have to think about this on another level too, okay? Jesus is not talking simply to individual Christians here. He's, he's talking here to a corporate body like the church, okay? We have to continually ask ourselves, is it possible that our church could be full of good deeds and doctrinal purity and yet be loveless and lifeless? And the answer is absolutely yes, In fact, I would submit to you that all churches naturally forget the gospel and turn to human effort 
unless they're continually reminding themselves of the gospel. I suggest to you that that the only churches who aren't loveless are the ones who are constantly on their guard about becoming religious instead of followers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, that's the natural inclination of the human soul. All of our inertia moves away from the gospel and toward ourselves. And so as a church, we have to assume that we're going to forsake our love for Christ. We have to assume that at the corporate level, a church has to continually repent as a body and say, we're forgetting the gospel. Because we always will. That's why we've put the gospel up here on the wall in our vision statement. People are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why if you look at our core values, the number one Core value on our list is the gospel. That's why every week I'm trying to remind us of the gospel here. It's as applicable to those who do not know Christ as it is to those who know Christ and perhaps have known him for a half a century. Unless the church is constantly on guard for human religiosity instead of believing in the gospel, unless a church is continually going back to corporate repentance for abandoning the gospel, a church will become loveless. And look, here's the thing. What this world, what the city of Evansville ultimately needs is not loveless orthodoxy. It does not need more religion. It does not need spiritually indifferent Christians. It needs... And I'm going to go back to C. Joy Bell C. What the world needs, what the city of Evansville needs, are people who've been set ablaze by the love of Christ and who burn through the skies and ignite the night like a phoenix, who've been cut loose like a wildfire and who can't stop running simply because they keep on burning everything that they touch because Jesus' love for them has ignited in them a love for him that has transformed them and that can transform, transform an entire city. Would you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we repent as a church this morning. I repent as an individual for the fact that all of my inclination, all of our inclination as a church tends to move toward religion instead of the gospel. We tend to move toward our performance for you rather than Christ's performance. We tend to look at our moral excellence, our purity, our good deeds rather than Christ as the basis for our salvation. And Lord, when we do that, there can be no spiritual awakening in a city. But Lord Jesus Christ, we repent of that and we pray that you would keep us as a church. If, if you tarry for a hundred years, that you would keep this church centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would continually come back to that, that we would continually repent, that we would be on guard for our tendency to move toward ourselves instead of the gospel. And Lord, as a result of focusing on you, Jesus, that we keep our eyes on you as a result of that, that there would be a revival that spills out into the streets of Evansville and that brings a spiritual awakening that would go beyond Evansville. It would go throughout the whole area, the whole, the whole state, perhaps the whole nation, maybe even the whole world. Because the gospel is the power of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. 
for what you have done on our behalf. And it's in your name that we worship and that we pray today.